Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story. Because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Daniel Gallucci, one unbelievable individual that battled through brain cancer and is now pushing the envelope of neuroscience to then push the envelope of human performance. Him and his team are putting people in functional MRI machines, inducing stress onto them, and then looking at the scans through an MRI and seeing what's happening in the brain, why it's happening, where there's strong areas in the brain, where there's weak areas in the brain, where there's more blood flow, less blood flow, taking those people out of those machines, stimulating them in a certain way or putting them through exercise, some type of performance, putting them back in the machine and seeing if things have improved or if they haven't. They're trying to do this with as many people as possible so they can get to a conclusion or consistency on certain things that people can do to help improve performance under stress. Right now, they're working with the military and professional athletes to see just what they can do to improve their performance. Before we get to all that, remember to check out True Local. High quality meat shipped to your door, ordered online on your computer, pick exactly what meat you want, and it shows up to your doorstep. Frozen, individual packages. And then 15 minutes later, it's on your stove, 20 minutes after that, it's on your table. Check them out at truelocal.ca, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L.ca, and use my discount code, capital letters, HeroicMinds25, to get $25 off a standard box. Yeah, I was in a place where I had just begun studying at the Functional Neurology Institute in uh, Marietta, Georgia, under Dr. Carrick. Um, I had come off of uh, failed attempts at a soccer career throughout Europe for a number of years, um, but was really enjoying what I was doing. I started with an exercise physiologist sort of background, doing a lot of testing um, physiologically with elite level athletes through peak performance in Ottawa, peak center in Ottawa, and some other groups. And uh, that transitioned into the therapy side of things and osteopathic medicine and a few other forms of therapy. Um, So I was getting my feet wet with that, Um, made really great inways with some very valuable clinicians, Dr. Gallia, Mark Lindsay, a few people that I'd respected for a long time that I was then able to go and learn underneath and sort of mentor under. Um, Yeah, and and all along the lines, I kind of missed, uh, you know, the the soccer career. So I needed to get into something else, which was jujitsu and mixed martial arts. So I was doing a lot of training on, on, on that side, one a day, two a days. I tend to get obsessive with things. So it's, yeah, it's crazy. And it's, again, it's, it's the antithesis because they just dive around. It gets a little too windy and these guys are all over the field. But um, yeah, it, it was just... And I felt like that was my only competitive nature in going overseas, like as an adult, which it's it's hard to do for a soccer guy. Um, But, you know, I liked the physical side of the game. I enjoyed running. I enjoyed tackling. I enjoyed things that, you know, required less skill than than the skilled, you know, Europeans. Uh, So 
it, it almost was a, and I boxed as a kid and stuff. So I felt like it was a bit of a natural thing to, to get into. And I was very lucky. I'd met, uh, some, uh, UFC guys at the time and, uh, or not at the time, but they ended up having successful careers in, in mixed martial arts and doing some stuff under them for a long time. So I, I was really happy. I was in a really amazing space. Um, I was learning the, the neurology side, which just seemed to be the next evolution clinically where I could help, uh, whether it was athletes or, or, or other patients kind of with issues they were dealing with. Cause I always felt like, you know, or I started to realize that the brain sort of was kind of the control center of everything and the most mysterious sort of entity in the universe. And I've always had sort of an insatiable sort of curiosity. So it, it, it just was a natural sort of curiosity that lent me that direction. And then, yeah, it was around Christmas, 2008, um, we were in training and I'd, I'd been suffering for a few days with some very aggressive headaches. I thought it was maybe just because I was taking impact. Um, I was getting hit in the head, dumped on my head, um, some things along those lines. So, which was normal in, in training, but I, it started to really affect me in a different way. Um, and then there was one training session I remember a little before Christmas and, uh, was kind of dumped on my head a bit from a takedown nothing too aggressive but just kind of like a awkward fall resulted in a seizure um which i thought was disturbing obviously i thought it was purely from the sport i was a bit worried um i don't know if it inherently felt different or something but uh or maybe just because i had access so i reached out to some friends of mine and i were i was like hey i think i need a uh ct scan or an mri just to make sure everything's fine i'm sure everything's fine but i just just check and they yeah just sort of was like yeah that's, that's fine let's let's do it so I was uh I was uh, sent in for for imaging and then uh yeah I'll never forget I kind of I knew the guy and I kind of you know walked back just to see what some of the images would be and and uh you know it was recently not recently but a year before I'd been taken up with a lot of neural stuff and um yeah it seemed it still gives me goosebumps today like I I saw the I saw you know, I saw the scan and I was like, you know, like, holy shit, like, whose who's scan is that? And I'll never forget, it was like a technician that was just sitting there. And, like, he just looked at me with this, like, crazy, wide-eyed stare. And he, like, literally could not talk. And then, I'll never forget, like, I looked and I saw my name in the top corner of the on the computer screen there. And I was just like, oh, my God. Um, and he's like, you got to call the doc at the time he's like we got to call the doc like now um so yeah that then just then we had a biopsy early in june so it made for a terrible christmas but at this point daniel opened up about exactly what was going through his mind when he first saw his mri scan purely like i'm yeah it was purely like i'm fucked oh i shouldn't be. <laughs> i was like I, I well yeah like my initial thing was like oh my yeah oh my gosh like yeah this this can't really be real and I almost felt like I've you know I spoke to other people in similar situations I almost felt like I then almost was it was weird it was a again I don't, I don't know how to fully you know quantify it or, or to say it correctly but I almost felt like then in that moment I was almost re removed from my body and was almost just watching this poor sap just like trying to witness, make sense of this sort of situation. They're almost like it was a movie. I asked Gallucci if his research and his knowledge in the field helped him 
in this situation or if it made it worse because I figured maybe it could give him hope or maybe it could scare him by realizing the odds or the severity of everything going on. I think it scared me more. I, I think, you know, I, I'd, while the last few years I'd been driven by that sort of neurological curiosity, um, <clears throat> yeah, I was, I was a little bit well-versed, but I was by no means a, and was a radiologist or anything along those lines. But I quickly went to like, oh, how old's the scanner? Is it an artifact? You know, did I have filling in my eyeball or something that just destroyed this image? So I, I tried to think of any possible way that it, uh, it could have maybe not been what was there for whatever reason. And I still, I, I, I tried to hold out a bit of hope that that was the case. I think deep down, I knew I was like, who this is, this is not good. Um, and so when, when, when the, uh, the radiologist then called me like right back, it was, it was, yeah, within like hours, I think it was. And he was like, listen, we got to get you, we got to get you, we got to do this again. And then we got to set up a biopsy for you and see what's going on. Um, so yeah, I think that initial thing was, it was pure shock and almost like, oh, I'm, I could be really screwed here. Then we go into what the first steps were. So what happened next? How did we start to deal with this issue? And that's what Daniel shares next. Then what I just saw were just like things that just didn't look like normal brain matter ended up being what are called diffused astrocytomas. So astrocytes are like this part of like the glial system, um, sort of like supportive structuring uh, support cells of the brain and astrocytes are, are one type of, of these cells and they like stars so astro sort of in a star-shaped pattern so you could tell I think anybody that just looked at any sort of brain image would be like yeah that doesn't look so good um, there were five kind of distributed randomly and uh, yeah I, I think I asked Daniel did the odds mean anything to you at this point? And I know I brought that up before with Anthony Stewart and he said, you know, the odds, you know, didn't matter to him. He was going to force the odds and he was going to force things to work out in his favor, which he did. And he ended up in the National Hockey League. In this situation, I wanted to know if the odds meant anything for Daniel or if he knew what the odds were. No, no. From the functional neurology side, a lot of it was, yeah, we're going through just basic brain anatomy and things along those lines. But I wasn't well versed in oncology or anything along those lines. So, I, you know, I started, <laughs> yeah, the research started that day sort of and, and, uh, and, and moving forward. But I, I, I really would have had no idea. I would have had, and again, I wouldn't have known what I was looking at. Is it a meningioma? Is it a GB, like a glioblastoma? And, you know, things that have very different, which could have very different sort of clinical outcomes. Um, you know, any, I think anytime anybody sees something like that, it's it's only natural to jump to, oh my gosh, and then kind of work backwards from there. Um, so I, I tried to then, you know, I got up the next day and was like, okay, assuming that we're maybe going to head down a road that's not going to be so rosy for the next little while, you know, what are the things that I, uh, what are the things that I need to try and do to, to, to arm myself to, to deal with this sort of thing? So... I feel like I, I was able to quickly change my mindset around a little bit, but uh, also part of that was like I, I still you're, you're left in a gray zone for for a while, which is probably a good thing because it, it it maybe gives you the tools initially to sort of think about how you may want to uh, attack. Interesting point here because I feel like we're in a world where we want all the answers right away. 
we think that if we don't have a set of instructions in front of us, and again, I'm learning as we go, so I'm talking personally. I like to have the rules in front of me. What do I do next? How do I get from point A to point B? And I stress over what I'm going to do next or what is the right decision, the most efficient decision. And Daniel explains here that that gray area, that confusion actually gave him time to figure out what was the best course of action. We heard a very similar concept when we talked with Julia Mann, and she said that, direct quote, a pause doesn't mean it's over. So here's Gallucci needing to move forward, pause in time, collect himself, figure out what he has to do to move forward accordingly and efficiently. Yeah, I think, and I know what people say, like, and again, at the end of it, yes, I was, it was, it was great, it, not great, but it was, it was like, I, I felt comfort in like, okay, this is a diagnosis, this is what this means, this is what we're moving with. Um, I did realize early on that, like anything in medicine, you're, you're never really dealing with certainties. Um, you know, there's always levels of possibility. So, you know, it's very, I should say you're never, but you're very rarely dealing with certainties. Um, you know, cancer is one of those beasts that, that's typically like that. Like you can have reporting numbers to show great outcomes, terrible outcomes, research on this type of, you know, these types of antibodies or this sort of imaging or this sort of chemotherapy and radiation. But the reality of it is it's still going to boil down to you as the individual um, and you're not going to fit perfectly into any sort of research report or study. So there's always going to be a level of unknown there. And I was kind of, I almost took comfort. I think this is a really interesting point, the idea that we're always dealing with uncertainties. For me now, re-listening to this episode, I realized that I think sometimes I fall into the mindset that everything happens you know continually and falls into place and well that's a simple way to look at it but really things could always change in Gallucci's case he looks at that optimistically that the script may change variables may change and things might just find a way to work out so I, I think I was almost yeah I was blessed by thinking it was going to be you know it's a fairly aggressive form um, yet there were people that could get better i felt like you know i'm i was young at the time i'm not now but i was young at the time uh other than getting hit in the head i was relatively healthy trying to take care of myself doing a lot of things to put myself in the position that well if anybody's going to be able to overcome something like this then how do i focus my energies 100 percent on being in that five percent or that ten percent and i felt like if i could do that if i had a 100 percent chance of being in that percent then i had a 100 percent chance of getting better um and i it was hard to do but i i truly it took a while um a long while where you know i think we've spoken off mic about this before where the, the most tor well there's a couple tormenting things but <laughs> one of the most tormenting things would be like for the first I don't know what it was, but maybe almost a year where I would wake up every morning and it'd be like Groundhog Day where it's like, it didn't hit me for the first like minute or so that I was, that I had this. So I would wake up in the morning thinking like, no, oh, I'm totally fine and I'm just ready to attack the day. And then the reality a few seconds later, seemed like minutes later, maybe it was seconds later, would, would hit you and be like, oh, and it would always just kind of kick you in the nuts like day after day. So it'd be, it, that, it was a bit tough, but then you, you kind of, worked out of uh, that by just trying to sort of reframe your, your thinking process around it. 
I then asked Daniel what the next steps were and where things had to go from a radiation standpoint, so on and so forth. And he explained those and, and exactly what was going to happen. But I wanted to know in those moments, what did he have control over? What did he want to take control over? in that situation because obviously there were a lot of moving pieces he did not have control over i i think primarily the mindset to be able to say you know i I can't be a number here like i i can't you know i've and again i I can't expect anybody else to take the responsibility for what's going to happen with me or to me or for me here um that you know, I, I sometimes, yeah, I sometimes think I'm sometimes a bit too pessimistic by nature. Um, but I was like, you know, these guys are going to do the best they can, but they're coming in to do a job and they've got to do their thing. And, you know, I didn't expect anybody to sit there and kind of hold my hand and wonder about what I was like emotionally and, and these sorts of things. And, you know, I realized I was going to have to do all that sort of stuff myself. Um, and you know, I, I took comfort in that because I felt like I could, you know, I could control that. And while I think support groups are great and they're, they're great for some people out there, um, for, and for many people out there and we need to have them. Um, I almost, I, I got a bit more support just from sort of the people just around me and support meaning like a lot of people I didn't tell. Um, as, for as long as I could, as best as I could. And the people that did know it was like, you know, and I think it's harder for them than it would be for me. Um, you know, we just try and go on as normal. Um, tried to work as much as I could, exercise as much as I could, um, get punched in the head less than I was. Um, but, you know, try and maintain as much normalcy in, in my life. And I felt like then I could, you know, I, I could... I could battle this sort of like weird biologic process that was occurring kind of in my um, in my head there. It was a roller coaster. It's it's not like like now when we discuss like things with I, I think there are a lot of similarities with with uh, with the world of concussion or people that are struggling with concussion, which we deal with a lot with now and I, I shouldn't even say concussion but post concussion issues and traumatic brain injury or things along those lines. I, I think it was, a, it was a massive roller coaster because sometimes you'd go in and then you'd... I, I realized one of the mistakes I made, also because I had access to some things, I was too vigilant with like data and scanning and things. So, oh, it's a centimeter smaller. Oh, that's great. I'm getting better. Oh, now two months later, oh, it's about the same. Oh, now I'm worse. I'm going to get worse. It, 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 almost, it almost became too much. Um, so there was, it was ebbs and flows where I felt like over a period of two years, three years where it was like getting better. Oh no, or getting better. Oh no. I, if I tried to put on my scientist hat and say, could I tell physically? Mm, not really, because to be honest with you, even that, but then you start throwing in other variables. It's like, as you, as time progresses, you've also thrown more radiation into your head. So like even today, like I, I sometimes, you know, you get massive, I've never been one to suffer from headaches, but you sometimes have massive headaches now. Is that just a headache disorder that's occurred later in my life? Is that attributed to, you know, and what some research would indicate in terms of the martial arts, in terms of the radiation, in terms of everything? Um, so sometimes, even when times I was feeling worse, I could be getting better. So like there was always almost like a little split between like the behavioral side, which I think is hugely important, like the behavioral side 
and the physical side. And so it's something even in, in sort of my practice now, it's, it's something that you're always trying to consider. Like there's a biological side, there's a psychological side, and then even like a social side. So kind of the people that you're, you're with and that you, you spend time with and just the environment that you're in. So I think um, it was always a bit tough, even now. Like I could go for a scan now like and think, you know, I'll just be nervous having to go into it and, and, and think, oh, it's going to be back. And, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's, it's one of those things that's constantly, it's, it's constantly there, unfortunately. And, you know, it can, it can sometimes always be a bit of a reminder. But I would say, you know, after a year or so, we had these things like where it was like they're not growing. They're starting to shrink down a bit. I'm feeling pretty good. Um, you know, hopefully things are going to move. Hopefully things are going to move in the in the right direction. And so luckily a few years later, I'm, we're, we're still here. Now it's a really interesting message that gives reason or meaning or understanding to pain, discomfort, adversity. Very much a biological, psychological approach. And it's one that I've never really even thought of, but one that I think is important and really simplifies a lot of the issues in life. And that's what Daniel talks about next. You know, the, like life itself, like biology itself, it's just so random and variable that sometimes like shit like that's just going to happen. And you know, even though my best intentions may be, well, I'm going to take this little smoothie and it's going to really make me better. Um, I think primarily the reason it'll make you better is because you believe it'll make you better. So if I ate a pizza and felt like it was going to make me better, then I felt like that was going to make me better. Um, so I, I stayed in a pretty immediate sort of mindset um, to battle and do whatever I had to do to battle. And I think there's like a, we get caught up in like this and we're all guilty, of, or I'm super guilty of it, but like a deserving sort of mindset. And it's like, well, I deserve this. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's weird in that, you know, it, it was strange for a while there. And again, maybe it's a bit diabolical, but, you know, there's, again, if we look at genes, there's not that much different that's going to set, set me apart from a shrimp. So why should I be super blessed and not be stricken with any sort of disease or dysfunction here and be able to have nothing bad happen to me? It's like, that's not, that's not biology. That's not the way it works. And just because I feel bad for myself because I'm suffering this, it's like, you got to take that out of the equation because that's not going to be helpful for me. It's not going to be helpful for, for anybody. So I could have my own little pity party. And, and I had many of those on, on my own time. Um, but it's just, life is just so like stochastic nature. It's like, you know, same thing with genetics now. Like we, we, we over, we, we do all this, uh, you know, and I sometimes hate it with all these clinics right now and the genetics of this and the genetics of that, but there's still so much variability there that goes beyond genetics. And it really, you know, so we can't really, you know, we look at these little snips, these little mutations and say, oh, well, this is going to mean this and this is going to, and that doesn't, that, it's not the case because you have, you know, like these genes are, are going to react in a way to, to sort of like local properties and sort of variability. So there's, there's a massive sort of variability in the way things occur and, and, you know, as unlucky as I was to get it, I was just as lucky to kind of get rid of it. And that's why I, I'm not the guy that's going to like, and I've been asked, you know, write the, the book on, 
you know, you ate this and this and this to beat cancer or you did this and this and this to, it's like, nah, because I didn't also write the book on why I got it. So I'm not writing the book on how I got rid of it. It just doesn't make sense to me, you know? Before we get into Gallucci's research and the projects he's working on today, I just wanted to know where he's at now with his health and how he handles the potential insecurity of that, but hopefully a newfound confidence in his health. I also let him know I personally think he looks like a 10, but he seems to have another opinion. As far as I know, things are, knock on wood, things are pretty good. Now, I look like a four and a half, but I looked like a two and a half before, so I guess it's a bit of an improvement. Um, <laughs> I'm not at the Ben Finelli 20 scale. It's a 10 out of 100. It's not a 10 out of 10. Um, but no, I, I look like I feel pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I, I really do, I think. So much of that is driven off of, you know, just again, being active, like, and I I don't mean being active, like going out and just running around or training or things like that, but more importantly than anything else, just keeping your mind active, then keeping your body active, um, having things kind of outside of your work environment that you can sort of devote some time to. Um, I don't think balance sort of exists in any way we try, but you know, at least for me, it doesn't necessarily work. So I just go super hard into certain things for periods of time. I do the best I can with it. Um, and then I take a bit of time away to sort of gather myself and do what I need to do. And I just get stuck right back in. And I feel like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's an amazing thing for a person that, again, it's just a curious person by nature. It's a, it's a good sort of, uh, it's a good sort of field to be in um, because we're constantly learning and constantly trying to trying to move forward. So yeah, it's it's fun for sure. Now we're gonna get into the research that Daniel and his team are doing and how it is groundbreaking and could change human performance forever with what they're already able to see is just breathtaking. So we're gonna hop right into that. Buckle up, it's pretty exciting. Well, we got a few projects on the go right now. I, I would say one of the things I'm I'm most excited about is I was approached by a group, and you got to get him on. You know, he's gonna maybe come join us later, but he, he, you're gonna have to get him on at uh, at some point. But another Ben, uh, an, another Ben uh, Gallagher approached me. You know, more than half, maybe almost a year ago now. Uh, these guys, you know, were working on a very you know, very interesting project in terms of using some uh, very modern, for a layman's way to put it, sort of high-tech uh, neuroimaging, sort of like brain imaging uh, from a structural and functional component uh, standpoint to be able to look at athletic performance, for one, um, be able to predict then injury occurrence kind of for two. And then there's a third component of it, which, you know, we're technically according to government regulations right now, and this sort of imaging that's just still so very new, we're, we're not able to make sort of diagnostic claims, but I think over the next uh, few years, because there's plenty of research groups that are studying these forms of, of, uh, neuroimaging, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, also be at the forefront of looking potentially diagnostically at things like um, concussion, uh, other neurodegenerative disorders, um, looking at things from a stroke perspective, looking at things from a Parkinson's perspective, looking at things from a TBI perspective. So I, I, I was hugely lucky. 
um, where these guys were looking at uh, a, a component where, you know, there's a certain type of imaging where they're doing like a functional MRI. Um, so we're putting people in a scanner. We're doing this out in Kingston right now. We do now have the ability to be agnostic. So as long as there's a good enough sort of magnet out there in an MRI machine, what you'd call a 3T uh, magnet, then we can attach sort of the software from this company to the imaging. And we can do a functional MRI, which is basically going to give us like blood oxygen level dependent. So it's basically just going to show us flow in certain areas as a proxy for what's happening neurally from a uh, communication standpoint in the brain. Um, we're looking at diffused tensor imaging, DTI, which is basically going to give us like the structural integrity of the brain down to a very minute level. So we can look at sort of the wiring of the brain and we see how water travels across these sorts of neurons there. And if there's been, you know, shearing to the neurons or they've been, you know, jacked up out of position due to like a concussion or just genetic maladaptation or whatever the case may be, then we can see sort of the structural integrity there. Um, and there's a third component, which is uh, what's called a CVR, cerebrovascular reactivity, where we can actually then, you know, administer uh, basically like a stress test for the brain in the scanner. So to catch everyone up to speed, so Gallucci's team, they're putting people in these MRI machines, they're using breaking edge software to see what exactly is going on, and they're testing the blood flow in certain areas of the brain, the structural integrity of the brain itself, and the different parts of the brain under stress. So they're inducing stress on people while they're in the MRI machines and seeing how their brain reacts. This is then gonna lead them to hopefully see how they can improve people in certain areas of their brain. What can they do outside of that MRI machine for weeks at a time and then go back in and see how things have changed? Um, where our amazing sort of uh, staff there, they, they will actually put a mask on your face so you can't go in with that smooth like metro beard that you got on right now. You gotta, you're going to have to shave that down. Right now, we may change that to a breath hold, but right now it's like you got to put the gas mask, you put the mask on, you're in the MRI machine, put a mask on, we have you breathing normal oxygen, so normal atmospheric oxygen, and then uh, at 20.9 or whatever it is percent wise, and then so we can get a baseline and we can measure this over time. So we're not just taking an x-ray, right? We're not just seeing like a static image, like we're seeing sort of like a temporal, like a time sort of a spatial and temporal relationship of the brain and over a period of 10 12 minutes you know there'll be an increase so we kind of turn on the co2 carbon dioxide so the carbon dioxide which is what's called like a hypercapnia type stimulus to the brain that's going to cause a uh, uh like a dilation of the of the vessels we can we can stress test the brain to see how how does this person respond to stress so you're playing in a game you know we're under a stressful situation how or where in areas of this brain is this guy going to guy or girl um is this guy going to dilate well is he not dilating well maybe he's maximally dilated already maybe he's under so much sympathetic stress or whatever the case may be prior injury um maybe he's already maximally dilated and while we're putting the stimulus in there he's got no room to to expand so he's not dealing with the stimulus very well we have you know you know nicole as an amazing phd chris like a data scientist from john hopkins and ai deep machine learning guy dr cook like one of the best surgeons I would say on the Stanford trained neurosurgeon that's back in Kingston there, like farmer dude that's like raising cattle and 
dissecting did the brain surgery for the guy from the tragically hip there um like these are guys at at the, at the highest level and why they came i don't know why they came to me but you know or why i tried to go to them but now this is the part that i find so interesting so you gather all this information and you can even start to see consistencies over time of certain people reacting in certain ways and then you start developing tools to use so how amazing will that be in the future and that's where Gallucci says he comes in then there's the whole integration side back to right now the players or to the youth athletes in terms of like okay if we've seen all this stuff you know then my job becomes okay well then based on the the information that's accrued through the imaging you know what do we do for these people is there something we can do what do we do how do we plan um you know, you know some of the people that we've had in there. Um, let's say some of the NHL players, for example. It's like, okay, so how do we take what we've got now and develop performance protocols for these guys? So we're not like, oh, you're concussed, come in and let's figure out how to fix your concussion. You know, while there could be a portion of that, again, later down the road, and while I'd still say it's it's very helpful to have guys that are that have been concussed or currently dealing so that we can see where we're at from a performance standpoint, it's from a performance standpoint, it's still performance. So it's like, okay, this isn't looking good here. This isn't looking good here. There's too much sympathetic stress in his basal ganglia, which controls motor control. What are we gonna do for that? Oh, his visual cortex on the left side is perfusing a little slower. It's, it's maximally perfused already. He may not be seeing visual information as well in the right side of his visual field in the world. So that's when we pull all that stuff together, which is just, you know, it's amazing, and especially now that we can start throwing people back in. This is the exciting part now where Gallucci and his team can figure out the stimulus to then put those individuals through that need some type of adaptation, some type of change, and then put them back in the machine and see how things look. Yeah, it could be conditioning. It could be other strategies. It can be, okay, well, maybe we need, you know, IVs of certain types of nutrients thrown in there. Maybe we need, maybe we want to throw this guy in a sensory deprivation tank because he's got so much sympathetic stress. And, you know, a lot of it is conjecture right now. A lot of it's going to be anecdotal right now because it's like, go look up a paper on like, you know, a, a Stanley Cup, you know, level athlete um, that's suffering from this and this and this and this and the performance product, it, it doesn't exist. Like that research isn't out there and it's never going to be out there. You're never going to get these guys to, to, to contribute to that sort of, uh, commit to this sort of research and we can't expect it. So we've got to just base it on what we can from a biological perspective, from a psychological perspective, from a social perspective. What is the evidence-based approach? What is medicine telling us? What have we been seeing on the ground, front lines with these guys and girls over the last few years? And, you know, like anything, we're making hypotheses, you know, as we go. But the thing is, at least we can base it off of neural information. Like, it's like, so much of what we've done and I've we, we we've all done it and it's what we could do like we can only do with we can only deal with what we've got so it's like oftentimes I can't take everybody and throw them in the scanner so I'm looking at we're looking at eye movements or we're looking at um, you know the way they're walking their gait cycle or we're looking at the way they balance or we're looking at the way they have motor control on one side or the way they saccade jump their eyes and it's it's a proxy for what we hope the brain is doing or think the brain is doing, but we don't really know what the brain is doing. Whereas here, it's like, wow, I can actually see 
what the brain is doing live in a situation under stress. And I can take that information and I can do something with that moving forward. So I feel like, you know, uh, Ben was, was a, the, the guy that founded the company was like, wow, it's, you know, we're trying to, in a very layman's way, it was like, it's almost like a money ball, but like using the brain from like a money ball perspective. And, you know, it, I, I very much think it's, it's in that sort of way where, um, you know, the athlete stuff for us for now, right now, it's, it's great. And it's, it's hopefully it's not always the case, but it's, it's low hanging fruit for us because athletes, they, there's, they're, they want to drive that performance forward. They need to drive that performance forward. Like professional sport is about winning and what you need to do to be able to win. Like we know guys that are doing that right now. And it's like, what is the next step in the evolution of where we've gone from a training, nutrition, you know, and we truly believe this is just sort of the next sort of evolution. Now, this is where I ask Alucci, what about everyday people? What about people that aren't athletes? How about just performing under stress in general? We all perform under stress every day. So can we enhance that in people with this machine? If we put numerous people in there that all have consistencies in their scans, we bring them out, we put them through similar stimulation, similar exercise, whatever it may be, and then put them back in and it's they've improved? Well, how amazing could that be? So that's what I want to find out. I think you're exactly right. And I think like you've, you've preached many times on, on your podcast and there, there's a certain level of adaptability there. And we've discussed this before and whether, you know, I look at it from a truly biological sense. So it's like, are we looking at adaptability truly, which to me seems more of a genetic sort of adaptation, or are we going to look at a short term sort of, sort of acclimatization sort of thing? But I do try, we do try to acclimatize guys to, to stressful scenarios, um, which we've discussed in terms of like with our new little clinical environment where we use like virtual reality to simulate stressful sorts of situations um, and have them deal with that, have them breathe through these stressful situations, have them be able to expose them to stressful stimuli in a safe control. I can measure their oxygen saturation. I can measure their heart rate. I can see how they're feeling. I can ask them um, and, and, and be able to sort of train that response like we would anything else and that's where I, I do think that becomes the next sort of evolution in terms of where we're going and I've probably now told everybody before I've been able to capitalize on it <laughs> but no it's 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 like no I, in all seriousness I, I do think that's where we're going I, I think what what becomes the underlying reality though is the situation that we get a lot of people in there that don't look good to begin with so ideally yes moving forward we can democratize the technology it's cheaper it's more pervasive it's everywhere we can get what we're trying to do right now going into schools and getting some bait quote-unquote baseline imaging and information um in these developing brains and, and and things but you know you you sometimes will have people in the scanner um, and, and you look at their imaging and when the report comes through from the radiologist, um, you know, there's, you know, there's areas of the midbrain that are responsible for like a lot of the automatic, like your autonomic nervous system. And if there's a lot of damage there, and if there's been a lot of trauma there, physical or structural that is whether it's then behavioral or whether it's behavioral first and then leads to physical or some sort of structural functional sort of relationship there again it goes back to something you've preached where it's like you know we we do 
mildly try to at some point expose these people to some um, situations that will force some sort of adaptation in 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 one way or another it's like you know there's it's it's been done throughout human like when we discussed you know you know in central africa sickle cell anemia is inherently neuroprotective it's protective not neuroprotective it's just it's protective from a biological standpoint against malaria which is endemic in the area so the sickling of the hemoglobin is actually confers an advantage and that's a genetic adaptation that's been made over years and years and years whereas you know i go into a situation i now got to play a soccer game at 15,000 feet, there's going to be, there's not a genetic change that's happening, but it's an acclimatization to the stimuli of the decreased O2. And what do I do? So, you know, there's different strategies for each. And that's, that's basically what we're trying to, to sometimes deal, do, deal with here. Then I asked Lucci, so what exactly is it that you're looking for in these scans? What would I want to see in my own scan? Generally speaking, you know, the better integrated both the structure so if we're looking at wow look those neurons are looking really nice quote unquote you know we measured what's called like an fa score a fractional anisotropy score so like a perfect score would be one like water moving along a straight neuron just perfectly unimpeded and then it starts to angle off this way or that way it's scoring and again nobody's going to score an actual one but it's you know a nine or it's an eight or it's a 0.9 or a 0.8 or 0.7 um Generally speaking, from a health perspective, like the closer that is to one, the better connectivity there we've got from a structural standpoint. And if we can see that and we can see from a functioning standpoint, so the blood oxygen level dependent and, you know, the, we see all the, the sort of the, the functional side with it. And if that looks good too, generally speaking, people are going to look pretty good. And now Daniel gets into exactly how we can use this research and technology to help people beyond athletes, to help people that are actually dealing with issues, not necessarily pushing the envelope of human performance, but helping people bounce back from different issues people have been through. You know, we, we focus a lot on sport. Uh, it's low-hanging fruit. We focus a lot on military because we have access to military. But what about, you know domestic abuse there's a huge level of of brain injury in domestic abuse or in the homeless or in so there's massive amounts of the population that we haven't even really even touched on yet so chicken or the eggs the behavioral components leading to this structural components leading to this it's it's hard to say but we we need some of that now i ask Lucci, where do you want this to be in the next 10 years what is your vision what is your goal in a perfect world I will be sitting in an olive grove in the south of Italy, pressing olives while we have an artificial intelligence and deep machine learning system that's taken everybody's brilliant sort of brain information, dumped it into an algorithm that's now doing this without any human interaction whatsoever and like <laughs> fixing people. That would be, ideally, this is where this is where I'd like to be in 15 years. Where will we be there? I, it, it may take a little bit longer than that, but... Ideally, we do. We do have an AI sort of deep learning, machine learning component to this to be able to learn because we, we do. We, we, we need to be able to extract all this information and we need to be able to learn from this. And I do think, you know, the world's of, you know, it's ubiquity, the terms of AI and, and deep machine learning. But when done right, like it's 
it's phenomenal sorts of technologies that where we can we can rely on this sort of stuff moving forward. So it'll be a really important integration into the life sciences, into biologic function, into health, into performance. Um, so I feel like, yes, there's always going to be the need for humans right now at this point to be able to drive the clinical outcomes. Um, but I think ideally what will happen is we will get more and more info, more and more data that just shapes the direction of where we're going. We're continuing to learn like there's new and new, there's newer techniques that are coming out. There's, it's, it's just an, it's an amazing time to be involved in science because we're so it's, it's such a rapidly changing field. Um, and I'm lucky where I can still focus on the translational side, but it's, it's hugely exciting in terms of where, where I think, uh, you know, technologies enabling us to sort of uh, move towards for sure. And then in conclusion, obviously I want to throw some adversity in his path. And I said, this all sounds amazing and incredible, but really how complicated is it still? Because they say we only understand a fraction of the brain. So really what lies ahead in, in all of this? His answer really reminds me, at least being outside of the research world and outside of the scientific world, how complicated research really is and how complicated the brain and the body is. We're looking at it from as many levels of organization as we can. So it's like, that's why none of these strategies is going to, is going to be the tell-all. Genetics, yeah, that's fine. You want to do this genetics test. It's, it's one level of organization because that could be a little snip on the DMA, DNA, but that's not the chromosome. So what's happening at the chromosome level? That's not the protein transcription. So if you want, we can continue down that rabbit hole in terms of like, levels of organization but okay let's say that you've got a genetics okay now we're doing imaging so we can look at structure okay now we're doing imaging that can look at function now we're doing imaging that can look at stress now we're doing a behavioral questionnaire now we're putting these people through drills now we're seeing how they're interacting with their environment now we're seeing how they're interacting with their coaches and every one of those factors matters so any one of them i don't think can fix everything collectively you need them all sort of to be orchestrated in a way to give you the best chance for success and that doesn't matter whether you're a business guy that doesn't matter whether you're an athlete that doesn't matter whether you're a student so that's trying how we we, we try and take an sort of all-encompassing look at that i'm gonna like galucci sum this one up but i just wanted to say that is the end of another heroic minds podcast thank you for listening thank you for the feedback we will talk again soon this is the heroic minds podcast I'm Ben Finelli. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I don't believe I deserve anything more than like any, you know, it's like this place has been around, again, maybe the church would say a little bit differently, but if we've been around, we, but the universe has been around for 14 billion years and you're here for a little speck of whatever, like I deserve what? Like nothing. So you'll make what you can out of the time you have and do what you can. And I took comfort in that. So I take too much comfort in that because I, I, I live too much probably in the present, but I'd still rather do it that way than, than the opposite. Thank you very much, Ben. Bye-bye.